Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meetings, Ellen Ellison speaks with Rashmi Quatra. Ellen is a past guest on Capital Allocators when she was Chief Investment Officer of the University of Illinois Foundation. Rashmi is the Founder and Chief Investment Officer of 16th Street Capital, 
a Singapore-based manager focused on emerging and frontier markets in South and Southeast Asia with $240 million under management. 16th Street manages a concentrated fundamental equity portfolio with a long-term focus on Asia's fastest-growing capital markets. Before they kick it off, Ellen and I discuss her due diligence process and the fit of 16th Street in her portfolio. Ellen, great to see you. Hey, Ted. So I want to chat a little bit about Rashmi and 16th Street. And why don't we start by framing out when you looked at your old portfolio at University of Illinois, how did you think about a concentrated manager focused in Southeast Asia? I had been looking for a way to pivot a little bit away from China about 18 months to two years ago. And we had done a deep dive for Indian managers. And in the context of that, we started talking to Rashmi. One of the beauties of managing a reasonable size endowment is that we can always look at funds the size of Rashmi's. I wanted her to be a part of the emerging market portfolio as well as the emerging manager, but also we had followed her pretty closely for the first two and a half, three years of her operation, getting comfortable with her. For me, finding someone with her talent, her age, meant that it would be a really long runway for a 30-year investment with this one fund. And I certainly loved the fact that she was concentrated. And as you know very well, I don't care so much about mark-to-market volatility, which is the case with all these smaller markets. What did that due diligence process look like with Rashmi? We took our time. We visited her twice in Singapore. I think she had one or two employees at the time. She came to visit us in Chicago a number of times also in the summertime. We met her first in 2018. I introduced her to a bunch of other people, not just to be nice to her, but also I wanted to find out what other people whom I respect in the business, people you know and respect also thought of her so that I did a little extra indirect triangulation through people I knew when she was in the Chicago area with all those family offices and other institutional investors. And then the big thing, we booked a trip with her on the ground in Manila and my team and I went to Manila And we met five to seven portfolio companies with her. Half the companies we met, she were already in the portfolio. The other half were not. But it was the opportunity to see how she interacted with management, which was something I really wanted to see firsthand given her age and the fact she's a young woman of color in an otherwise very white profession. And so that was really critical for me and my team. What did you learn on that trip? She knew her companies, the managements respected her, and because she speaks a lot of languages and despite her relative youth, knows these companies well, I I was very impressed with what we saw. We also used that in-person time to talk to her also about streamlining and simplifying some of her general terms, and this was an important conversation as well, because she was very open to what we had to say. She understood why we were making the suggestions we made, which would benefit all of the previous and future LPs. 
And I find the way a GP reacts to term suggestions to be highly revelatory in terms of their ability to be a great partner going forward. So it was a very productive meeting. That was in November of 2019. Then the pandemic hit. We knew that would be our last trip to Asia for a while. And we funded her, I want to say, in July. She's very clear that the contributed capital is going to be $300 million. We were going to start with a fairly good allocation, but we thought we'll stay about 10 to 15% of her total fund assets. So I started layering in, I think I did like 5 million every month for the first five, six months. So now that she has a three-year record and she's weathered some really tough markets. So I feel like she's, she's exiting the startup phase at this point. When you did those manager meetings with her, how did you think about the whole concept of a base rate? And what were you comparing those meetings to? We typically will go visit corporate management teams with all of our managers. I've done this in Japan. I've done it in Latin America. So that I feel like I have a fairly good international or emerging market baseline for her, given that she was a relatively small fund still starting out, I wanted to see how she specifically held her own with management teams, the quality of the questions she was asking and the way they responded. I think it's very good to think about base rates and it's great that you're bringing it up. In the moment, I wasn't thinking about that. I wanted to make sure that they were taking her seriously, frankly. And so ultimately, why did you choose to invest with Rashmi in 16th Street relative to other managers that you encountered, say, in in the region? She runs a concentrated portfolio. She has a long runway for success. I think she she exudes a strong sense of conviction in what she does and does not know. And these business models, even though it's a strong growth strategy and a compounding strategy, I think she has a very good sense of what her hurdle rate is for any specific company to get into the portfolio and also what the overall expected growth rate is for the for the portfolio so that I believe she demonstrates a decent amount of valuation sensitivity relative to what is, in fact, a pretty high growth strategy given the market she's invested in. Well, Ellen, thanks so much. Great to see you. And thanks for bringing Rashmi into the fold. Now, I'd love to start with your background. This audience loves a great origin story. And I think you have a terrific one. So you grew up in Thailand in an ethnic Indian family with a highly entrepreneurial father. Please tell us more about your background. Hi, Ellen. It's great to be here. And thank you for your time. I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand. So Thailand is home for me. My family is fourth generation Thai. So we've been there for a long time. But as you said, ethnically from the South Asian region. So it means I speak several of the languages in this region, Thai, Hindi. And growing up, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My father used to export home decor from Thailand, mainly to the U.S. His largest customer was Pier 1. And so I would follow him to the office, and that's where I learned about inventory, credit. His motto was always, rush me, customers number one, number two, number three. So I think a lot of that still stands with me, and it was my first introduction to really running a business, thinking about business. 
He then became a full-time investor in the Thai equity markets. And I remember him handing me the intelligent investor and saying, Rashmi, reads chapters 8 and 20, and then let's discuss. <laughs> so I was very fortunate for somebody growing up in Thailand, you know, Ellen, I didn't know many people who were being handed the gospels of investing and really had somebody to talk about on a Saturday, what makes a good company? Why is he looking at such a company? So it was really quite eye-opening for me. I saw how sustainable a career he had investing his savings in companies that had strong cash flows, gave high dividend payouts. So I was very fortunate that I think was my early introduction into investing. A little bit more about my background. My mom had a huge role to play in, in my upbringing as well. She taught me how to connect with people, always creating a space where people came over and shared and, and laughed. And I think that allows me today to connect with people, with management teams very well. Her lack of financial independence, though, also taught me quite a lot and early about some realities and hardships in life. I saw the importance of financial independence early on, what it meant to have it, what it meant not to have it. And I really knew that it was something that I wanted to have long term. Rashmi, that's so interesting. It sounds like your parents had both EQ and IQ. But tell me, were there any other young women in your educational environment or high school who had an interest in investing? I mean, was that considered, were you like an oddball weirdo? Absolutely. <laughs> there, were, there were no other women thinking about investing. We think today and maybe growing up, you know, my age in, in the West, Warren Buffett was still kind of an iconic and children had been introduced to investing, but in Asia, not as much. So I didn't really know a lot of women or men, my, you know, boys my age talking about investing. And I was definitely a little bit of an oddball. <laughs> so the stereotypical image Americans have of Indians is that you have to be either an engineer or a doctor, but that is obviously very different from your experience as growing up culturally Indian in a Thai environment. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. I think it's pretty interesting. We were fourth generation Thai, and most of the immigrants that have been in these countries for so many years came as entrepreneurs and had very entrepreneurial backgrounds. So unlike in the U.S. where some of the immigrants are maybe what we call second generation, the first generation of children are being born there. In some of these markets like Thailand, you've had generational immigration. And so most people are entrepreneurs, really part of the community and thinking about long-term, more entrepreneur careers, business families. That's kind of where I grew up. So your dad was a successful exporter to the U.S. market. Obviously, you were tagging along on a Saturday and learning about his business. How did you decide to attend the university at UPenn? How did that happen coming from Bangkok? Yeah, you know, I guess I was introduced to investing by my father. I had kind of this exposure to what it meant to have financial independence, what it meant not to have it. And then I was just very, very interested, right? I was hooked. As soon as I started reading, I started thinking about companies. I knew that this is something that I wanted to pursue. And Wharton was touted as the best business school for undergraduates. So I graduated top of my class. I was valedictorian of a 
very multicultural school and really worked to get into the best colleges. So they included several of the Ivy Leagues in the U.S. And I chose Wharton because of its speciality in investing in finance. And I knew that was a path I wanted to go down. Wharton is still kind of the sine qua non of finance education. I can, and I can confirm that today. Did you ever look back? Did anyone tell you, well, what are you doing? Why are you going halfway around the world to college? It seems like a hell of a long way away. People knew that I worked very hard and I really had a natural kind of gift for learning, for curiosity. I'd never shy away from an opportunity to learn. And some of the best universities globally, at least by reputation, are in the West. So it was more of an aspiration than what are you doing? So you went to Wharton. I think the story of how you ended up right after graduation at Prince Street is something that It's just a really wonderful combination of luck and opportunity colliding in a great way. So please tell us, how did you end up at Prince Street, which was and is a terrific emerging market manager, but certainly was on the cutting edge in this space when you got out of school? So I was an intern. I did several internships during my university years. And my last one was at Deutsche Bank on Wall Street. And at Deutsche Bank, I was did a rotation program on a sales and trading desk. And on the sales desk, I was actually on the European equity side, but across from me was the head of Asian equities. You know, he could see just how much I knew about Asian equities. I was the stocks that they were talking about. I was telling him their background, the politics of some of these markets, Indonesia, Philippines, you know, I would get engaged in discussion. So he said, Rashmi, we have our heads of research, the head of Indonesia and head of Philippines coming to meet our clients and their clients on the research side of Deutsche Bank were emerging and frontier market funds. And he said, why don't you go with our heads of research? Because our new associates know a little less about the region than you do. I said, absolutely. I'm assuming that was fairly atypical for a summer intern, right? It was, definitely. There was two new associates on the desk, and I think they just, because of my experience and knowledge, thought that I would represent them well as well. So I went with the heads of research and met some of their emerging and frontier market clients, one of which was Prince Street Capital. And I sat across Prince Street Capital, talked to them about Thailand, talked to them about a company I liked in Thailand. They held a position in that company, lots of correlations and and things to discuss. And so I left there thinking, hey, they are serious about a part of the world that I'm investing in. They liked the fact that I could speak Thai. They liked a company that I liked. It'd be wonderful if they would give me an opportunity after university. And that's when, you know, you said, did you ever get pushback? Or I remember telling some of my friends in school and they said, Rushby, nobody gets a job in the buy side straight out of college. You know, you have to do Deutsche Bank. (laughs) (laughs) It is rare. Absolutely. And then Deutsche Bank is giving you a full time, a a lot. I had some full time opportunities. I said, no, this one really sticks with me. So I searched Prince Street on the on Google or Yahoo at that time, who knows? And I found their their number and I cold called them and I said, I met with your analyst. Would he be interested in taking a call? And 
got through to him. He remembered me. He said, why don't you let me know the next time you're in New York? The next weekend I took a Chinatown like, bus. I'm in New York now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the next weekend. Oh, I happened to be in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he met me for breakfast. You know, he said, you should do a call with our founder. So I did that and eventually convinced them to give me a job. They hadn't hired in six years. Really lean team as I'm running a fund as well. We're very lean. You usually hire, if you hire well, they stick with you for a long time. And there's not that many opportunities, but I wiggled my way in and that was the start. I love that story. And so you were ultimately responsible for the Southeast Asian book. And tell us before we move on, how many years were you at Prince Street? And were you covering all the same markets that you are today at 16th Street? Yes. So I covered South and Southeast Asia for Prince Street. I was there six and a half years and I am still focused on this part of the region. It's home to me. It's where I spent my career at Prince Street and where we see a lot of the opportunity. So South and Southeast Asia are our focus markets. So looking back, and perhaps it seems like a long time ago, what were some of the key learnings that you came away with during your time with David at Prince Street? Before joining Prince Street, I was looking at balance sheets, reading the newspaper, doing a lot of self-study and material study, which I think is still a big part of our process. But when I joined Prince Street, my first year, I was so surprised. My travel budget was almost half my salary. I was like, oh, okay. So the encouragement of really going out to these markets, traveling to meet the management teams, to get to know the ecosystem was very much encouraged. And that has stuck with me since. So the time at Prince Street, you know, really allowed me to cultivate relationships in the industry, meet other buy-side funds, sell-side, the best of the best in their field, companies, families, and really intricately get to know the people in the ecosystem. And that has really stuck with us. It's part of our process to understand the alignment of the decision makers in the companies that we invest in. Well, getting out and seeing companies and managements on the ground is hugely important. So I I imagine that was tremendously helpful for you to realize that that could be part of your process once you established your own firm. So perhaps we can transition now to the lead up and the launch of 16th Street, which I believe is, it's not a takeoff on Prince Street. I think 16th Street is the name of the street you grew up on, if memory serves. So that's, people always want to know how you named your fund. And I think it's after your hometown street. Yeah, so my mom still lives on Soy 16 in Sukhumvit in Bangkok. So Soy is tie for street and so 16 is home to my sisters and I and so 16th street to me represents home and also I did like the fact that at Prince Street it was quite a neutral name so when I was a partner there I said I was a partner not of Quatra Capital or Ellison Capital it really gave me a sense of ownership and long term I wanted a name where my team felt like they were building this and had a lot of ownership. That's terrific. So walk us through your thought process as you decided to leave 
what was obviously a very great gig. You were still incredibly young and seven years into your post Wharton career. Tell us what led you to found 16th Street. So in general, Ellen, I am committed to a life of growth and development. I almost always knew I'd start my own business one day, one that reflected my philosophies, my values, my beliefs. And I always think about making decisions that are best for the long term, even if that means near-term challenges and risks. So in terms of starting my own fund, the question was really how and when. We did explore the opportunity and the possibility of launching with Print Street. So, you know, about six years into working with Print Street, both David and I thought I was very much ready to run my own fund. And I had also fortunately become a partner in Print Street, had some of my own capital that I wanted to reinvest in what I was doing. Unfortunately, or or fortunately, but at Print Street, I was looking after the South and Southeast Asia portfolio, but it wasn't a carve out. So there wasn't a way to directly align interest in exactly what I was doing. So the first step was to launch maybe with Print Street, but it became very clear that launching a fund within a larger organization wasn't going to work for the long term, which is all that matters to me. Size was capped. There was not full ownership of the brand, some conflicts with the main fund. And I said, it's going to be an easier start. I'll, you know, have an easier couple of years raising capital, but ultimately I'm going to have to make this move if I really want to build something for the next 30 years that aligns with who I am and my strategy and idea of partnership. And so it really came down to let me do the right thing for the long term and who I am as a person, which is if I'm passionate about something, if I can see the long-term gains, I'm not afraid of the short-term hard work. It seems to me as an allocator and investor that you either take your pain up front or in the future. And it sounds to me as though you decided you were willing to take your pain up front versus either taking seed money from a really great firm like Print Street and just going out and starting on your own. So Perhaps it's easy to say that now after you've survived the first three years of your of your new business. <laughs> it was not easy. And I remember even in those discussions, ultimately, I think about it has to be a win-win from both parties. And I thought about even if it would be easier for me after a couple of for the first few years, if ultimately I didn't see the long term alignment and I would have to leave, then it wasn't fair to us that they launch me as well. And I think that's, again, part of who I am. And ultimately, it means I have the support of my former partners in all of my future endeavors as well. And the style of investing you're pursuing at 16th Street and the markets you're in are, by definition, very long-term markets where if you're invested for under three years, you're going to be disappointed because there are lots of ups and downs during even the three-year period. So I like the fact that you were from day one thinking generationally in terms of decades. So let's talk a bit about starting 16th Street, 2018, recruiting the team. And then I would love to know more about how you actually 
went about finding the original LPs or anchors in your fund? So in terms of finding the first anchors, I mentioned we were going to launch with Print Street. So Print Street had kind of tested the water with just a handful of potential LPs saying Rashmi is going to start her own fund focused on South and Southeast Asia, much more aligned to what she does, which is concentrated investing in, in great growth companies run by phenomenal management teams. And the response was actually quite positive. So there were two investors, one which was a quite a large Prince Street LP and one who was interested but not yet an investor that said, we're interested in starting this strategy with you and potentially committing $50 million day one. And so I knew this and said, that's fantastic because these investors had met me maybe a few times, but I really wasn't on the marketing side. They had just seen my work, seen me present for Print Street, some of the write-ups that I had done, but there was interest. And ultimately, when I decided to launch on my own, I wasn't sure if, if that interest how much was it Prince Street? How much was it Rushme? And had no surety that they'd come with me. And I launched day one with $10 million, primarily my own capital and capital from my former partners and fund managers in the region. But I reached back out to one of the investors that was not a Prince Street LP that was interested in coming in day one with them. That's a family office based in New York fantastic long-term investors, and they really understood my rationale for doing it independently, traveled with me to some of my markets and said, we'd love to come in and give you that $50 million. I only took $25 million of it up front and then ended up calling for $25 million at the end of 2018 because it was turning out to be quite a volatile year and start to the fund, and I think really did right by them long-term, as well as all of our partners that have come in since who have grown alongside us. So let me just be clear. You were offered $50 million. You said, no, I'm only taking $25 million on top of your friends and family capital of $10 million. Did anyone like smack you and say, why didn't you take the $50 million up front? No, no. I think it was definitely a conversation. And that's what partnership is. Surely, everybody's probably, you should have pushed for X, Y, Z. But for me, it's always a conversation and about doing the right things long term. And I was going from being an investor to a business builder and giving myself that time as well to really ensure that I do right by my partners long term is much more important. But yes, of course, I hear it all the time. Sometimes rush me and you just need to close the deal. Why are you know, you talk so much and you give here and there. But I think it works because long term, if we're here to do it together for the long haul, I think making sure that both parties are comfortable is important. I cannot take any credit because I bootstrapped on the backs of the the early founders whom are two people I totally respect and admire in the allocator world. So I have to ask you the question, do you think it's a coincidence that your initial funding came from women CIOs? It's been wonderful. You're right that I have your support. I have support from some of our early investors, our women CIOs. And I think it's definitely not a coincidence in terms of for our first investor, they did tell me that we're looking at our portfolio and we don't have any women fund managers. And I think that 
ultimately the decision was not made on me being a woman. It was made because they were already interested in my background, in my working with Prince Street, that history with the firm that I was with and having traveled with me. But maybe women CIOs and women investors in general or investors in general want to see more diversity in what has typically been a homogenous industry. And, and so I'm happy to be able to provide that diversity in perspective even to our partners' portfolios. So I work really hard not to be reductive in having these conversations, but I think it's super important to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that you're a young wunderkind, you're a woman of color, in a profession that is dominated by older, mostly white men. So what is that experience like? How did people react to you when you started your firm? Yeah, you're right that it's, I'm a woman, I'm young. So there was... And do you think that your youth was more an issue than your gender or your ethnicity? Yeah, it's all coupled in one. And I mean, it's, as you said, it's one after the other. <laughs> um, woman, I'm young. If, if I was, check a lot of boxes. And each thing is quite different from the norm. So I would always say I'm young, but I started young. Not just investing young, but most people don't start on the buy side until they've done five years in another industry. And so there are many ways to look at it. 21, I was going in the office for two to 20. So I started young, which means the number of years that I've been doing this, even professionally, is more than most managers who start on their own. Anyhow, it comes down to it's a lot coupled in one. So I did see a lot of hesitation. To me, ultimately, I know that if you stick to your knitting and you really work hard and you do what you love and you are passionate about it. And I do think we're good at what we do, that ultimately time will tell. And so I've always been about the philosophy of time will show and we will prove that we are very, very good. And that that's always been most important to me. And I think it's important for me to represent that for the industry as well. Part of the reason that I did start on my own was I said, I looked around and said, I keep saying there's not enough women in the industry. And I said, Rashmi, you're now a partner, Prince Street. You have the capability to launch this fund. If you don't do it, how can you expect anybody else to, or how will this really change? And part of the reason that I chose to do this is to say, you know, long-term, I think I can be successful at this and help just demonstrate that this is possible and give maybe younger women somebody to, when I thought about it, I couldn't think of one other investor who was a woman doing exactly what I was doing. Nobody in the public markets that looked like me. And I said, it's about time that we have a few more of us. Before we move on to less sociological and gender-based questions, I do want to ask you if your experience as the PM and founder of 16th Street is similar or different from what I've heard contrasting pre-pandemic versus now, because it does seem as though there is a renewed or a new focus on DNI since the pandemic. So has there been renewed interest in you and your strategy since the pandemic? 
we've done very well in the last few years, right? And we've also hit many milestones. So we've now been in existence for over three years, three and a half years. So I think there is definitely interest in the fund. Do I think that we're seeing some of the talks around DNI come into fruition just yet? I'm hesitant to say that we're seeing the action being taken. I do hear a lot more discussion around it, which I think is a first step and it's lovely to hear. I definitely have not seen an allocation because somebody was looking directly for a female manager. And I would think that if some of that is closer to action stages, then we would be a great candidate. It's fascinating because all the puzzle pieces have been thrown in the air since before the pandemic. There has been renewed interest in recruiting managers such as yourself who are the ethnic, gender, and chronological description of who you are. So that is the reason for my question. Let's move on to philosophy and strategy. Let's talk a little bit about how you build a portfolio. Is it concentrated? What is the average number of holdings in your portfolio? Yes. So we do hold quite a concentrated portfolio. We hold approximately 20 holdings, but our top five can make up 50% of our portfolio, top 10, usually about to 70%. And ultimately we're investing in great companies. We think have a very long horizon to grow in markets that we think have structural tailwinds. What is your average holding period or time horizon for any position you would own? When I think about investing in a company, I think, would I want to own this company even 10 years, 20 years from now? Will they be here? Do they have the ingredients to be much larger than they are? It's difficult to model out, say, 10 years, however. So then we look at in the next five years, we think about what are the key inputs? It's a big part of our process to think about if I was running this business, what are the key inputs that will really matter for the trajectory of this business in the next five years? And we nail in on that and try to really grasp our heads around what that will look like to see if this company three, five years from now will be significantly larger than they are today, if we can get in at a valuation that makes our IRR very attractive from today until five years from now. So that's how we think about it. So let's speak about your hurdle rate on any position you would add to this highly concentrated portfolio. Obviously, that's very expensive real estate. Sort. So any new idea that would come into the portfolio, I assume, has a very high IRR. So tell me how you think about that relative to your valuation discipline. We do have quite a high IRR hurdle rate. It's north of 25%. We are fortunate to be mining in countries that themselves are growing 5 6 7%. There are industries on the back of that that are gaining a lot of shares. There's the private sector is gaining from the public sector in this part of the world. You have offline operators moving to online operators. There is a shift from the unorganized segment to the organized segment. So lots of structural reasons why you can find double-digit growth in selective industries. And then our job is to really find the best companies that are 
not just growing with those tailwinds, but doing the right things, taking advantage of technology, for example, to expand their target addressable market and growing even more rapidly. So their earnings themselves are growing very fast. Again, in terms of valuation discipline, while we're invested in growth companies, I was trained early on by my father, who's a value investor, very much focused on cash flows. He needed high dividend payouts. I prefer that our companies have a high return on invested capital and are able to reinvest that capital for a very long horizon at very high rates. But it still means I'm very disciplined when it comes to valuation and what we pay for our entry prices to great businesses. And so that's where it was really important that we model out what this business will look like five years from now, at least I think my strengths and the strengths of the team is pinpointing some of the key drivers and how we wrap our heads around what these key drivers will look like. And so we can get a better understanding of what this business is likely looking like and have that foresight in the next three to five years. And then think about what will we pay for that business three to five years out? And can we get the IRRs that we require, which are quite high, by investing in today's price or what do we need to change? I think that's fascinating. And I think that many investors are very attracted to these very high growth markets with with great domestic consumption patterns that are improving. And yet these are also very volatile markets for a number of different reasons. I think it'd be super interesting, Rashmi, if you talk a bit about how you construct your portfolio that can combine I think of it as a barbell, these issues of tremendous growth, but perhaps more limited liquidity characteristics in small to mid cap stocks with the larger cap companies that are more liquid in India. Yeah. So as a portfolio, I really think about, I need to have exposure to the best companies that I think are the best investments for the next several years. I also need to think about, do we have funding currency within the portfolio? Should there be volatility in the markets? So I think from the outside world, volatility in in the markets in these regions can be a little scary. For us, it's an opportunity. It's nothing out of the ordinary. I've been investing in these regions for a very long time and we embrace the volatility because it allows us to get invested in some of our great companies for the very long haul. But we need to be mindful of having that currency should the opportunity arise. And Ellen, you were fantastic. Actually, you did invest with us at a time when we needed capital, but it's not always the case. You can you know, not always rely on, on outside investors to come in at the right time, especially our markets are a part of the world that we still have to educate a lot of investors about. So it's important for me to have a portfolio I can fund from. And that's why we have kind of a multi-cap strategy. So we have some companies that are larger, more liquid. It's portfolio construction and smart investing. We are seeing in this part of the world that and globally that some companies larger means better network effects and the larger are getting better even with size. And then it's still true that smaller companies from a smaller size, it's easier to scale from a smaller size. And so you'll always find opportunity in mid cap. But 
So for those reasons, they're good investments. And also it makes for great portfolio construction because it means that some companies have more liquidity or of larger size, some are smaller. I'm able to fund from sometimes the larger or more liquid companies to take advantage of opportunities. We also think about it not just in terms of market capitalization, but exposure to more than one market. So I'm invested in, you know, the South and Southeast Asia region. I think that allows me to have exposure to more than one market and the market correlation within one another is quite low. So if there's a volatility in the Thai stock exchange, I might be able to fund from Indonesia or India and vice versa. And that's important to me as well. Being invested in more than one markets also is part of our investment process. You know, it really allows me to triangulate what's happening in more developed markets. What we're seeing, we study the U.S., we study China, then we apply it to our markets are at different stages of development as well. And what we're seeing happen in Thailand might also happen in India. By having this kind of more regional landscape, we're able to take advantage of opportunities that pop up maybe at different stages in the varied markets. I wonder, and this is a related issue in terms of this notion of barbell of liquidity between these frontier markets such as Bangladesh, Thailand, Vietnam, and India. Also the fact that you are keeping very close track of your contributed capital, which is approximately 130 million, even though you have compounded that capital very nicely. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you arrived at this 300 million cap in contributed capital, because I think it's particularly interesting relative to the liquidity profile of some of your smaller frontier markets. The reason that I wanted to cap the fund was much more on, I think, my discipline and thought process of building the business than necessarily the capacity of some of these markets. At Prince Street, I was running 600 million in assets when in South and Southeast Asia when I left. And I thought we intend to compound capital double every three years, three to five years on a stretch. And if I raise 300 million, that gives me three years, even if I raised it day one to get back to the size that I was running. And in the interim, build my team, build the business. And it was very important to me to signal to my partners that we're here for the very long haul and not to asset gather quite quickly, but to be very thoughtful about how we built this business so that we would build a very sustainable business. Again, I really thought about how to do this right step by step. I still do so that we're here for the next 30 years. Now, in the next 10 years, even in the last five years, we've seen that these markets, the depth of these markets have grown very nicely. We're monitoring just a handful of fantastic IPOs that are going to happen in many of our markets. They're quality companies that we've been tracking for many years. We're seeing that these markets are broadening and in the next 20, 30 years, I expect them to get much larger. But we will always be disciplined as to how much capital we take at any time because for me, it's all about, as I said, being good at what I do. To me, size, when you're good, size will follow. Organically, we could compound and be quite a significant firm and, and that's what I'm really banking on and I want to be able to kind of 
have real partnerships with our LPs. For me, it was about investing and doing what I love and then doing it alongside people that want to do it with me and come along for the ride. And and that's the crux of why we are capping the, the size of our fund and how we think about this for the very long haul. So let's talk a little bit about your first three years. To the outside observer, they seem extremely volatile, but maybe this is just a normal business day for the markets you invest in, Rashmi. Yeah, I think from the outside world, it can seem volatile. A lot has gone on since I stopped launched. You know, we had a liquidity crisis in India. We've had COVID globally. So the markets have been volatile, but volatility for me is the norm. In each of my markets, you've had different issues and I've seen volatility in almost every year that I've been investing in certain markets and quite drastic volatility. So for me, it is something that I am very comfortable with. And I'm grateful for that because it means that over the years, I have garnered the temperament and the strength to, I think, really take advantage of these opportunities. Those are the times that I come into the office the most excited. I always dreamt of building a culture where when the markets are down, everybody is very happy. And I think we're building that at 16th Street. In March, I said, print our portfolio and throw a dart. It almost became a game because I said, throw a dart and it will double. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think that we really just want to build a culture of, investing when the environment is tough, but we have done so much work that we feel very well prepared to understand our companies and that while the environment and the markets might be tough, our companies will come out thriving and therefore we can get invested when times are volatile or tougher. Speaking of volatility, you've had a huge win in SEA Limited which has done extremely well since you bought it, I believe, at the end of 2018. And yet you still feel it can double twice from where it is now, or it's a triple from approximately 200 today. But obviously what's going on in China is important because Tencent owns 16% of this company, which is your largest single position. Back in the day, we used to say when the U.S. sneezes, Mexico catches a cold. And I feel like that's, to paraphrase, I feel like in your markets, when China sneezes, the rest of Southeast Asia gets the flu. So I don't know if you have any macro comments relative to the fact that China is the elephant in the room in all these markets. And it can be both a positive influence in terms of supply chain shifting into Vietnam, Indonesia, and other markets outside of China, or if there is heightened regulatory or political pressure between the U.S. and China. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's actually a misconception that if China goes through difficulty, so does South and Southeast Asia. I think actually South and Southeast Asia are big winners when we are seeing turbulence or or ultimately China is at a size and scale now that people want diversity, not just in, I'm talking about allocators, but I'm saying companies. When companies are thinking about outsourcing parts of their 
companies, they don't no longer want to outsource just to China. They're looking at Vietnam. They're looking at India. When people think about their supply chain, they are don't want to be as reliant on China as they are today. So the only place to go is South and Southeast Asia. It's Firstly, not even feasible today, for example, to make a T-shirt in China. The labor costs are just too high. But it is feasible to create a factory for garments or for washing machines in Bangladesh, in India, in Vietnam. So our markets are definitely benefiting from China's scale and size today being quite overtly dominant. And regardless of how things pan out, Today in China, I think our markets are on a very good trajectory. They're growing very nicely. They're attracting investment from global investors. China wants to diversify away from China. So does Japan. So does the U.S. So a lot of the industrial hubs are looking for opportunities in some of these markets. We own a company in Vietnam. It's an IT outsourcing company. And the company cannot hire enough developers to meet demand. So they're growing 25% a year because they can only train that many developers. But the number of contracts they're getting from Japanese customers, etc., to outsource to Vietnam is so large that the trajectory for their growth could be even higher. And, and that's where they're really upskilling the labor force. And we could see this kind of growth for many, many years to come. So I've spoken with a number of managers who have been very constructive on how business in India has reacted during this awful pandemic period. And it's interesting to see, well, first of all, the Indian markets are doing well, but I'd love for you to share with us your impressions of how things are going in India, number one, and number two, how the role India plays maybe as an anchor to windward as the more senior of these other markets that you're invested in. The companies that we're invested with in India are benefiting from many trends. So there, and it's not just India, it's the rest of our markets, but there is this shift from kind of offline to online, from the unorganized segment to the organized segment. And what I try to explain, and I've been explaining for years, is that in this part of the world, most businesses are small, medium enterprise businesses. They're not large businesses. So If we have a way to systemize, digitize these businesses so that they can be more efficient as we move away from using cash and there's more checks and balances so that the shopkeeper doesn't have to be there to man the shop and can think about growth and can get funding for growth, we move into a a world where there is just much more activity. And that's what we're seeing is technology. You know, the fact that everybody has a cell phone, has access and connection is increasing the target addressable market for most businesses. The digitizations of shopkeepers, when we talk about SaaS products, it's allowing more efficiencies in the ecosystems. The government have moved to just really promoting more investment in the capital markets, opening up bank accounts. So a lot of these tailwinds mean that despite what's happening in terms of the shutdown, there is a whole universe of companies that are growing very nicely and tapping into a really increased target addressable market. Even companies that cater to, if you want to call them older industries, etc., the really great ones have been able to utilize this time to really refine their cost structure. 
So some of the best companies have utilized these times to really focus on cost efficiencies, and we're seeing them emerge with better margins, better profitability, a better team. So they've taken the time to focus inward. So I think we're going to see a lot of good news, actually, that comes out of these markets in the next several years, a lot of increased efficiencies, a lot of interesting companies that have had access to capital now listing on these markets. And I really feel like India is a great story, Indonesia, Thailand, all of these markets have very long runways for growth and are facing some of these similar opportunities where they're almost it's almost a once in a lifetime opportunity. We talked about China a little bit. I think about the last decade in China, it was a mega cycle and if you ask investors, you know, did they really capture that opportunity in China? They really had to be invested in the right industries, the right managers who understood some of the changes dynamics and I think we are getting that opportunity today in South and Southeast Asia. China's already large, it'll grow fine, but do you get that same J-curve effect? Probably not, and that's where these markets are today. So if you can get into the right industries that are taking advantage and opportunity of all these shifts, it's a real opportunity to compound capital. Despite the very obvious negative consequences of the health crisis, do you think it's fair to say the pandemic has, in a way, jump-started certain business sectors within India and these other markets in terms of forcing companies to move to greater digitalization and online activities? Yes, and it's also increased the adoption speed of customers to some of these services. So we've been talking about e-commerce, online digital penetration for many years, but the speed at which you saw habits move has been affected. And just as you said, the speed at which companies are just taking a look at their operational efficiencies has proved to be, I think, very beneficial for the longer term. So, Rashmi, having traveled with you in the region, you know that I love these markets, but they certainly aren't for the faint-hearted. And being halfway around the world, how could a U.S. or European or Latin American investor allocator get comfort in knowing whom they're partnering with and how do you mitigate some of the obvious risks of investing in these high-growth markets? The way we look at investing is we also think about our company's management as our partners. So we also think about who we're investing with. Are they aligned? Do they own a big portion of the company or is the company a big portion of their net worth? Have they done the right things ethically for all investors in the long haul? And I think who you partner with in these markets is very important. And so I tell the allocators on the flip side, I think it is important to partner with good managers in this region who know the companies inside out and can do the right things at the right time. Ultimately, this is a part of the world where I think active investing and still has value. Of course, I think we contribute value, but I do think knowing who you're partnering with at every rung of the process, we go down to who we're investing with. And I think that's important. I'm an allocator of capital in that manner. And it's important to me to know that they're in it for the long haul, very aligned. And that allows them to utilize periods of volatility to only better the business for the long haul. I would love to spend a few minutes talking about 
the specific opportunities and thematics that make you juiced up today. What are you really excited about today, Rashmi? South and Southeast Asia, it's a third of the world's population. That's been true for quite some time. So when I think about what's different or what's really changed in the last five years is that now when we're talking about investing with companies that are in the South and Southeast Asia region, their target addressable market is the whole population. Before, you'd have basically the government responsible for most of the population and private companies would only cater to, say, the urban population because it was just very hard to reach or access a customer in sub-Saharan Java or in places outside of the metropolitan cities. Today, everybody has a cell phone and internet connection is fantastic. That's allowing people to get bank accounts, sign up, have the credit bureaus become more robust, have more information on all of the citizens. Now, in all of these markets, everybody has an identity card. It's easier to transact open accounts in these markets than in many other markets. So the opportunity now lies in the fact that great entrepreneurs, private companies now can target the entire population and do so in much more efficient ways than, say, the public sector was able to in the past. And we're talking about these thematic shifts, digital and financial inclusion, offline moving to online, unorganized. You know, when I say unorganized to organized, to be clear, it's still a lot of retail in these markets are happening at markets not by brands, not by more formal distribution agents. And what we're seeing is that the compliance regulations to comply with taxes, to comply with being included in the system so that you can get access to financing is creating that shift for people to move to more selling in shops, selling brands that people get to know and and we get to participate in some of the growth of these industries. So you're talking about the unofficial, the informal economy versus the official economy, which obviously under Prime Minister Modi forced the black, we call it the black market in India, they call it the informal economy, forced all of that activity into the mainstream. I assume that's what you're talking about here. Yeah, it's not even just regulation. If you create systems for people to be in the more formal economy and show them the benefits, such as giving them access to credit, the shift happens automatically. It's historically, we haven't been able to provide the systems and the credit facilities. So there's no reason to go and then taxes, etc. So you're not able to really manage the entire economy in a way that we can see as formal or inclusive. But what's happening now is because of a technology rollout and the emphasis on getting everybody connected and better data, we're able to utilize this data to give people the correct access and more access to funding to fuel their businesses. And and that in itself is kind of shifting the economy to be a little bit more open about their businesses and inclusive and, and wanting to streamline. This is kind of a 64,000 foot question, but do you think of India as the next China? Is that a silly comparison? Do you think that there's an analogy there between the development of these two massive emerging market countries? I think they'll develop in slightly different ways, right? China was very, very heavy on manufacturing. 
at the time and relied on its manufacturing capabilities to grow very rapidly. India will have to rely on manufacturing and services. It will take a long time for, we're seeing their manufacturing capabilities increase, so it'll be a combination, but services will also be a big offering for India. Luckily, Indians speak English. They've been trained as developers and, and lots of engineers. So I see outsourcing to India as a, it, it already is, but continuing to grow as an industry. Thinking about how India can provide services to the rest of the world will also be a big leg of the growth. And so Again, it's inevitable that certain countries with size that are growing six, seven, eight percent will only become larger. Once a country economy starts to grow at a, a little bit lower rate, some of these markets will inevitably become some of the largest markets in the world. But how they get there will differ slightly. And I'll, I think we'll see that in how India grows. And is your country allocation purely a function of the bottom up stock selection Typically, you've had more or less half portfolio in India and then the other half across these other uh, frontier markets, such as Indonesian, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam, Bangladesh. So we have about 40% of our book in India. And it's the fact that ultimately we are looking for great companies that have long runways to really compound capital. And today, India is a deeper market. There are more than 3,000 listed companies. And so our ability to pick a handful of companies in a bigger pool, we're able to pick out a few more than in a market like Vietnam, where we own a few companies or the Philippines. But any one market, for example, an e-commerce company in Indonesia, it could grow to become a very large part of our portfolio. So I wouldn't say that the allocation in our portfolio is any way fixed. But yes, there are some markets that have a larger universe and therefore it's likely that they may play a larger part in our portfolio at any one time. Rashmi, this has been great. Let us proceed to the lightning round of closing questions. So number one, what is your favorite hobby? I took up tennis a year ago and it has become one of the my favorite hobbies. I'm very, very grateful. It started, we were in lockdown in Singapore in April of last year. And I overlook a tennis court of a, a building that's connected to ours. And every day I'd look over and I'd hear tick, tick, like this, the sound <laughs> of the ball. And I'd be watching the players. And I said, it's so fascinating. And why don't I know how to play tennis? It's a sport I think I would love. So I got out of lockdown and contacted a coach and I took some lessons. And today it's just fascinating. I think I applied some of the key ingredients to building a business to how I think about tennis, hard work, consistency. I'm always wanting to learn. I'm watching matches now. I watch Wimbledon. So fun. And at one point I had two coaches. <laughs> so a year in, I think my game is quite unrecognizable. I play almost four times a week. I've made a ton of progress and I just, it's so much fun. You know, something about tennis in that hour you only have that ball to hit and you have to get ready to hit it. By the time you hit it, you need to get ready for the next. So I think about nothing else but that 
hour and and it's allowed me to play you know a little bit of fun competition with friends a, a great workout helps me sleep at night just a big big fan <laughs> couldn't agree with you more so what is your most important daily habit i think it's not one habit but i do have kind of a morning routine so i take a couple hours every morning to create time and space for myself so i make sure that once i'm in the office or once my work day starts i know that everything is a million miles an hour i have lots of calls scheduled time to read time to spend with my team so the morning is very important to me i do yoga i do some breathing exercises pranayama really maybe cook for my breakfast but take that time for myself to really meditate think about what i want to accomplish and and really set a great positive intention for the day what is your biggest personal pet peeve personal pet peeve traffic is that a pet peeve yes <laughs> and the traffic in singapore can be very peevish do you have an investment pet peeve this is going to sound like broken record i'll say trading velocity uh, some i get really am a proponent for long term investing so you can't find me in a conversation about trading for very long <laughs> that makes sense it's the antithesis of your style do you have a favorite book and if so what is it what comes to mind is a book called life lessons it was written by two authors who spent time with the dying before they passed but it's really about how they live life how to celebrate life and cherish the important things in life so it's quite inspiring i'd say it's my favorite or most memorable because it's a book that has stuck with me but the origins of how i came to find it was basically i was going through my first breakup in high school and <laughs> my dad took me to the bookstore my father he said you know you'll probably find something here that will help you <laughs> and i found myself in the self development section and i think that's still my favorite section when i'm thinking about reading it's my go to and i landed upon this book it has the different chapters are on authenticity relationships living from the heart and i think some of those lessons still stand by me once again your father looms large even in your book choices <laughs> what is the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it it'll be mistakes on omission if that makes sense or not executing the biggest mistakes i've made have been when i've had strong internal conviction but didn't act on it or was convinced otherwise by other parties so really what i learned from it is follow your convictions and stick by your guns i feel like i already know the answer to this but i'm going to ask you what teaching from your parents most stayed with you actually it's the importance of connecting with people I think I was very fortunate to have a, a extended family even though we went through lots of different hardships but the ability to always have a space where we shared freely people shared freely and the connection was real has been an important part of my personality my life and gives me a lot of joy And lastly, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you'd known a lot earlier in your life, which seems a bit unfair because I feel you're still at the earlier sections of your life, but that's what we boomers say to millennials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm no longer a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) I think whatever age we're at, it's always to enjoy the journey as well. I think people like, I'm sure Ellen, you and I, or I know there's a rate to that, but dreaming and visualizing and really thinking about what we can create, but enjoying where we are today and having a lot of fun in the moment is just as important. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Rashmi, this has been a super enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Ellen. And thank you always for a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.